0: Good morning. Welcome again to the Church of Blue Ridge. I'm Ted, one of the pastors here. It's good to see you all this morning. So I have a question for you, and this is, I think, a common experience for all of us. Have you ever prepared someone you cared about for something that you had already experienced, something negative, and you took the time to prepare them? Or maybe someone has done that for you, uh, for me, just back in December, my nephew was going to boot camp, so I took some time to talk to him and prepare him for some of the shock. you know they don 't hate you, it just seems like that uh, don't take it personal things like that even even this week, uh two legendary actors, Tom Hanks and his wife Rita Wilson, kind of shared hey this this coronavirus isn't as bad you know for us this is how you know they they took time to let the world know for those who. Who might get it. And and that's a very common thing. We're appreciative when people take the time to do that. And and we ourselves enjoy giving folks a heads up when we can as well. And I I mention that because that's what we see Jesus do in today's passage. In today's passage. You see, the last two weeks, we've looked at both the fruitful Christian, right? Uh, the, The branch connected to the vine of Jesus Christ is to be fruitful. So we talked about character fruit. Uh, the, the the fruit of the Holy Spirit that, that Jesus produces in us, produces that Christian character. Last week we talked about the fruitful church, that a church that is fruitful will see as they engage in mission, will see God use them to bring men, women, and children to faith in Jesus Christ. So that type of redemptive fruit of converts. Uh, and so as we approach the text today, there's a, there's a switch, right? Jesus goes about talking... Uh, in terms of what the the Christian's response will be towards the church, loving one another, to what the world's response will be to the church, which, my friends, is not loving us, but instead, hatred, instead, persecution. Look with me at the big idea here for today's passage. And really, this governs the next two sermons that we'll be looking at, a very general overview of what the Lord is doing. He says, the disciples are graciously prepared for what they will experience as they follow Jesus into the Father's labor. We're going to see that this week and hopefully in some way next week as, as Danny will be preaching the next passage. But when it comes to persecution, I'm not going to deal with the what of persecution today. Uh, in the next passage, we'll get more into the what. But today, what the Lord led me to, uh, ha- to organize this sermon and to bring out to the surface is the why. Why? Why? Does the world, and first we're going to talk about who is the world, but why does the world hate us? Why do they hate Christians? Why do they persecute those who follow Jesus Christ? So that's specifically what we're going to look at in today's passage. But before we get to that, let's pray. Again, Lord, we come before you in prayer. Thank you for the sweet time of of worship and prayer and that great psalm of Moses and the theology in there that, that Robert reminded us of as we face uh, what we're facing here as a, as a nation, as a church. Thank you that we now can uh, turn again to your word and be encouraged uh, by the very words of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and helping to prepare us as, as he did the disciples for what we will face as we take the gospel to our neighbors, possibly, and ultimately to the nation. So be with us, teach us, and comfort our hearts today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned, as as we look at this passage, we're looking at the why. Why does the world react to the gospel and to Christians the way that it does? And we're going to see that in our our passage. And by the way, we're looking at, you'll see the title here. We're looking at John 15, 18 through 25. and, And I titled it, A Threatening Posture. And when you read that title, you might think, the world. But I'm not referring to the world, I'm referring to us. We have a threatening posture to the world. Jesus did as well. Right As he's bringing the light of the gospel onto the darkness of men's heart, there's a, they're threatened. And what do you do when you're threatened? You attack. And so that's actually referring to us as the church, as we love one another, as we love our neighbors, we actually have a threatening posture to them. That's how they see us. They're threatened. And the first way we see that in our text today is this. It's because we are not of this world. If you are a follower in Jesus Christ, if you have been transformed, born again, you are no longer of this world. And that's the first reason we see Jesus give here in this passage. So read with me the first two verses of our passage today, 18 and 19. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The date was July 7th, 1992, the Tuesday. I got up when it was still dark, which didn't happen much when I was 18. And I got in the car with my stepmom and my best friend and they drove me an hour south to Miami, and dropped me off at the military processing center. And on that day, my life changed forever. Didn't realize it, but looking back, my life changed forever. I was no longer a dependent upon my parents after that day. No longer was their home, the home I grew up in, my home anymore. Yeah, I would go back, but it was never the same. I would see uh, figments and and shadows of a former life, but I would ultimately leave and go somewhere else. It was no longer my home. In fact, I wasn't even a civilian after that day. A complete transformation happened, and I could not go back. And it's important before we go any further in today's passage that we know, and we're reminded of the fact, that if we are in Christ, if we have been born again, we are not of this world. We have been completely and utterly transformed by the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. So let's look now really quickly one of the great passages in the New Testament that, that reminds us of this, that we have to understand, and that is Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You'll, have, you'll see it on the, the one screen. Sorry to this side. It's two weeks in a row you guys don't have a screen, but on this screen you will see that, and let's read it together. Paul says there, and you, talking to the church, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, amen, right there. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the truth for all of us who are in Christ. We are completely and utterly different. This is no longer our home and there's no going back. And with that in mind, let's turn now and look at these two quick verses and see and be reminded that we we are not of this world. And by the way, as we approach this, there's there's some key words in here. This passage today contains six very important words, conjunctions that he uses, six, I'm sorry, 12. Six if and six but. And Jesus uses them really to make a very certain statement, a very truthful statement to us. And you'll see those as we go through. And also it's important that we understand the word world. John uses this word a lot in his gospel and he uses it differently. Sometimes he's talking about creation. Sometimes he's talking about all mankind. Here he's talking about the enemies of God. In fact, you'll see on the screen a quote by D.A. Carson. He says, The world in our passage today is used like this. The created moral order in active rebellion against God. And then you see a passage there from 1 John where that same usage is in play. He says, we know that we are from God, the church, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So important to understand as we continue in this passage. But look back with me at verses 18 through 19, and you'll see the key verb. The key verb for us in terms of applying this truth is no. You'll see it there in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know for certain that it hated me before it hated you. As followers of Jesus Christ, we will be treated just like he was. We will be hated. And we have to know that. The Lord wants us to understand and not be surprised when the world acts negatively against us, when they persecute us, when they throw us in jail, like the things that are happening to martyrs all over the world and has for 2,000 years. We should not be surprised. That's what he's doing. He's graciously and lovingly preparing us for this. And look what he says in verse 19, kind of the reverse truth that makes it so certain. If you were of the world, if you were still in the world, if you were still where I saved you out of, the world would love you, right? And that's that's great for us, right? If the world loves us and we're a church, something's wrong. Now, we don't want to go be jerks, right? We don't want to go pick a fight. But if we're following the word of God, if we're fulfilling the great commission, if we're loving him and loving our neighbors and loving one another, we're gonna be persecuted at some level, some level, depending on where we are in the world. That's the point he is making. And then the question should be coming to our mind now, why, why will the world hate us? Why is this true? And you see him answer here, which is where we get this first point. He says, because you are not of the world and furthermore, because I chose you out of the world. There we see for the second week in a row the sovereignty of God in our salvation, that he chose us out of the world. He rescued us out of the rest of mankind. What a gracious father, what a gracious God we have, gracious savior we have to rescue us. And that's the main point he's saying, because I chose you, I saved you, I rescued you out of the world. And that's so important. And we go back to Ephesians 2. You'll see it on the screen here. Another great passage uh, talking about the commonwealth of Israel, the people of God. That's the context here. And Paul says to this church, he says, so then you are no longer, this is who we were, strangers and aliens to God, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the family of God built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We are no longer of this world. And that's so important for us to understand. It's, It's a theological truth that has incredible implications for how we live our life, for how we apply things, and how we surrender daily to God for his use in this world. It is not our home. Can you imagine if I went back home one day and told my parents, hey, man, I'm not leaving. I'm staying here going back and forcing my way into that life. And yet, how many of us try to do that as we allow the sins of our old life to come back in and, and reign? We have to understand we are no longer of this world. And there you see the certainty there at the end of verse 19. Jesus just says it outright. Therefore, the world hates you. Therefore, the world hates you. So a few application points for us before we get to the second, uh, the second reason why. First and foremost, um, the sovereignty of God in election is an important doctrine. And it, it's not, how I believe now is how I have, it's not how I've always believed, right? When I was coming up through seminary, early in my walk, I believed what I was taught, that what it means is that God looked down the future of time and he saw all those who would choose him and then those he predestined, right? That's how I used to believe. But if you think about it, all that does is kick the can down the road. And it puts merit in a human. And, and the scriptures don't say that. The scripture says we are dead. There's nothing good in us. How can I choose God? And I actually wrestled for six years with the word of God. Really, it's like a boxing match, but I never once returned a blow. And eventually my hands were down and I was getting pummeled. And then after six years, I was face down on the ground, swollen eyes, bloody nose, and I waved the white flag. And I accepted the scriptures for what it clearly teaches that God is sovereign in salvation and his glory is on the line. But you also must know, again, six years, that here at the Church of Blue Ridge, we don't mandate that exact belief. We are patient with you as God is patient with us, but I encourage you, search the scriptures, dig in these truths, and ask God to show you because so many great practical applications come from a belief in his sovereignty in saving me, right? Confidence in a savior for one is so crucial, so important. Worship completely and utterly because of what He alone has done in saving me. He gets all the glory. And also, as we face a situation like we are in our nation today, to have confidence in the God who saved me when I was His enemy. We just read it from Ephesians 2. You cannot argue with that. When I was His enemy, He saved me. And if if God can do that, can He not protect and guide us during a crisis like the coronavirus? We have a God in whom we can trust, regardless of how, to what extent, the wheels come off of society or that we may encounter this physical crisis. What a God that we can trust. And it's important that we we see that here in the text. The second thing, as I've mentioned, we have to see our life as pilgrims. This is not our home. We're sojourners passing through. And there's some great practical application that comes with this, this mindset. One, helps us to loosen our grip on the things we have. To understand that God has given us what He's given us, whether it's resources or positions or opportunities, to be leveraged. And that's the second one leverage for the kingdom. To leverage these possessions, these positions for God's kingdom and His glory. Third, to prioritize our lives around what is important to God according to His kingdom and not just what's important to me and my life. Very important. Fourth, to resist the world's temptations, having the mindset of being a pilgrim right? One whose home is no longer on earth, but elsewhere, um, passing through, actually gives us strength and helps us to resist the temptations of our old life. And then finally, thrive missionally in difficult circumstances. And brothers and sisters, I believe that God and his sovereignty is allowing this epidemic, this crisis, whether you view it to be the virus or the human panic or both, which I believe it is an opportunity for the gospel worldwide. Worldwide. Here in our nation, but across the world. So I encourage you, be praying for the world more than ever right now because of what's happening, that God would bring revival and awakening across the globe and in our country and even here in Greenville County, that many would come to faith in Christ because of the fear, because of this this virus and all that goes with it. And and to quote um, uh, Russell Moore this week, he said, Church, don't quarantine the Great Commission during this time. Don't quarantine the Great Commission, and also look for opportunities in your community, in your neighborhood. People are scared. It's an awesome icebreaker right into the hope that you and I have in Christ because of the gospel. So important. And, and here's a great passage that encourages, encourages us along these lines from 1 Peter 2. He writes there, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, same as pilgrims, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul." Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right there, we have such an encouragement for us. But it's not only that we no longer belong to this world, that the the world hates us and persecutes us. Also, number two, it's because we proclaim Jesus's name. We proclaim Jesus's name. Let's continue in the text, verses 20 and 21. John writes, Jesus is speaking. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Isn't it a funny thing that it's the name of Jesus that nobody can stand? across religions, across worldviews, do you see people on a quest to remove the name of Muhammad or Buddha or anything else? It's the name of Jesus that offends everybody, from the atheist to the Jew and, and everyone in between. Why is that? Why is his name a cuss word and no one else's name? Have you ever thought about that? Because he is the only name that is truth and he offends. And as to the extent that we bear and carry forth his name, we will too. Now, I just came from uh, Air Force Chaplain School, as many of you know, and I had 32, 31 excellent chaplains of various religions and denominations. And we actually talked about this one day. To all the Protestant and Christian chaplains, there was a warning. Now, you have the freedom to pray in Jesus's name because of the, uh, you know, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. But you may want to Think about that because why? It's offensive. And we even had a Muslim chaplain who admitted he gets offended when he hears that name. Why is that? Because it's the only name that is true and real and the only name that we have as a hope to escape this world. So let's look now. Actually, look at this passage. This, uh, I forgot about it. I, I pulled this in and put it into the slideshow. This comes from Paul in Second Corinthians, one of my favorite passages. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in the triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Notice there's only two categories of humanity right there. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To those who are perishing, we give off a fragrance of death to them. And I left this part out. Uh, To the other, to those who are saved, a fragrance from life to life, right? Isn't that amazing? Just by proclaiming Christ and living for him, we're giving off an aroma, one aroma that smells differently completely to a lost person or to a saved person. Very similar to what Jesus is talking about in our passage today. So look with me back at the text, verses 20 and 21. The key verb here for us is remember, right? Know in the first part here, remember. And look what he says, the word that I said to you back in 1316, he said this earlier, a servant is not greater than his master. And we see that in the Synoptic Gospels as well. Uh, now, the context of that in chapter 13 was the foot washing. Jesus had just washed their feet, again, pointing to what he was getting ready to do on the cross. And that's servant leadership. He's saying, hey, if I did this, then you also go and do likewise. Why? Because a servant is not greater than his master. But here the context is different, obviously. He's talking about persecution. If they hated me, if they persecuted me, they're going to do the same to you because a servant is not greater than than his master. And a great uh, chapter in the New Testament, I would encourage you to read, especially as we prepare for next week. And and Danny's sermon is Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 is a great, great companion unit to what we're looking at here. And here's one quick uh, quote from that. Uh, In Matthew 10, verse 25, Jesus says, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household, i.e. the church. That's you and I. So uh, that's what he's telling them here. And But then he gets to the reason. And you see this as we continue verse 20 and get into 21. He says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now you'll see the world changed to the pronoun they, and hatred now takes on a specific action, which is persecution, right? Persecution. Again, you're gonna learn more about that next week. And then as we continue... He gives us some good news. Don't miss what he says here at the end of verse 20. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. That's good news in the midst of this. And it tells us something about our mission. Our mission is to go and proclaim Christ to everyone, everybody. And what that means is, as we do that, we're going to get persecuted by those who are not of God, who are offended who love the darkness more than the light and attack at us because we've, through the preaching of the gospel, we've revealed their darkness. But then in the midst of that, God's going to use our message to attract and save his children, just like he did us. And so we have this great encouragement in here that if they've accepted it, and we see examples of this in John's gospel, like with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, where people responded to the word of God and came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So be encouraged. It's worth the persecution to go and proclaim to everyone to find those whom God wants to save through us. That's the encouragement we see here. And it should remind us in the synoptic gospels uh, of the the part where Jesus talks about, hey, if you go into a village and they they accept you, then go in, go in and stay with them. But if they don't, then shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So I believe that's in the background of what John is, is recording here for us. But then we get the reason in verse 21. He said, but all these things, referring to the hatred and the persecution, all these things they will do, not maybe, they will do to you on account of, and there it is, my name, on account of my name. As we go obediently and follow the Lord's great commission, follow the Lord's great commandments, follow the Lord's new commandment, which we just learned as we do these things, we will be declaring to the world That we stand with Jesus Christ, and they will hate us for it. That's the point he's making here uh, in this passage that we cannot miss. We cannot miss. Look what uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, which again reveals his mission, and he repeats this in other places in his letter, that his mission was to go and find the chosen. He says, therefore, I endure everything. Paul, know anything about persecution? You guys think? Maybe a little bit? He says, I endure everything. It's at the end of his life, by the way, for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Is it worth it? Is it worth the persecution that we may face, that our brothers and sisters are facing around the world and and our, our brothers and sisters for 2,000 years have faced? Is it worth it to save God's children? That's the question that's before us. And then it leads to another question. Will we stand with Jesus? Do do people who are outside of Christianity look at your life and my life and say, he or she stands with Jesus? That's the question that is being asked of us right now. Do I stand with him? Am I willing to stand with Jesus and say, I'm with him? Does my life speak that? I'm with him. I stand with him. Come hell or high water, I stand with Jesus. That's the question that is before us in this great passage today. Look at another passage from, from Hebrews. Some of you might think this is Paul too, possibly. Hebrews 13, 14 through 15. Uh, he says, for here we have no lasting city. Now you know the context of Hebrews there. We've learned about Abraham, how he, he went through Canaan, not looking for an earthly city, but the eternal one. His hopes were set on the great city of God. For here we have no lasting city, no home, But we seek the city that is to come. Through him, that's Jesus. If you've read 13, you'll know that. that, That's Jesus. Through him, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let us live a life that screams and shouts, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. That's the point of it all. And then uh, finally there at the end of verse 21, we're gonna pick this up in the final section here in a few minutes. You see the real reason. It's not just because of uh, the fact that we bear Jesus's name. That's what gets them angry. But the real root heart reason for the world that they persecuted Christ and they will persecute us. And you see it there at the end of verse 21 because they do not know him who sent me. They do not know the father. That is the real reason. They do not know the Father. We're going to get back to that here in a few moments. But again, a few application points for us. I love this quote from D.A. Carson, so I wanted to share it with you. Look at how he describes it. He says, Former rebels, that's us, who have by the grace of the king been won back to a loving allegiance to the rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. I love how he sums up the point of this passage little homework assignment for you. Again, in addition to Matthew 10, I would encourage you, read Acts 13 and 14. That's the the part of Acts that that chronicles Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas. And in it, in both chapters, you'll see a fourfold pattern that is really helpful for us, especially as we go into missions and do missions and evangelism. And the first part of it is proclamation. First thing Paul does, he proclaims the gospel right? He, he proclaims the word of God, of Jesus Christ. And then immediately, second thing that happens is persecution. He is somehow persecuted. But then you see Paul and Barnabas do a third thing. They persevere through the persecution. And then on the other side of the persecution, you get the fourth thing, the fruit of salvation, right? So proclamation, persecution, perseverance, And fruit. Great fourfold uh, pattern to see in those chapters. So I want to give that to you. And then, thirdly, uh, D.A. Carson, as I was studying him this week, he suggested that as we're doing evangelism, as we're talking to people about church membership and things like that, it's actually good to warn them about what they may face. Not hide it for later, but be very upfront with what it means to be a Christian. I know that's happening with many of our friends who are missionaries in different parts of the world. They actually uh, my friends uh, are in, I uh, can't say where, part of Asia, and, and when somebody comes to faith in Christ from Islam, they actually have them go home and tell their family before they baptize. Some never come back. Others come back an orphan because they understand the cost. Once they get baptized in that culture, that's it. They're dead to the family and maybe even targets of persecution. So I think we should make sure as we're sharing the gospel with people, don't just talk about love, joy, and peace. Tell them the honest truth of what Jesus is telling us here, that you may face person, you may lose friends, you may lose things that are very important to you if you follow Christ. And what he says is, he says, this will discourage spurious conversions and help foster true ones. So important for us there too. And then finally, for all you parents, a great resource, if you're not familiar with it, Voice of the Martyrs. Voice of the Martyr, good for adults too. But I mention it for children because they have a line of animated videos that are excellent. It's called the Torchlighter series. So look up Voice of the Martyrs and their Torchlighter animated videos as they chronicle several of our heroes over the last 2,000 years who faced some sort of persecution. uh, Tyndale's in there, Augustine, St. Augustine's in there, Jim Elliott's in there, and, and scores of others. They made some excellent videos. We have a few of them if you wanna borrow them. We're not really watching them. Uh, anymore, so uh, let us know if you'd like to check out a few of those. When I say we, I mean my family. We've got a couple of those, those videos. So we've seen the first two reasons. Now we see the ultimate reason, which I've already referred to or alluded to, which Jesus now explains in the rest of our passage today, and that's this. They do not know the Father. That's why they persecuted Him. That's why they will persecute us who follow Jesus, because they do not know the Father. And here again, we see the sovereignty of God and salvation implied with this. But let's read verses 22 and 20, through 25. Jesus says, "'If I had not come and spoken to them, "'they would not have been guilty of sin, "'but now they have no excuse for their sin. "'Whoever hates me hates my Father also. "'If I had not done among them the works "'that no one else did, "'they would not be guilty of sin, "'but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. "'But the word that is written in the law "'must be fulfilled.'" They hated me without cause. So as we go back to this passage, what Jesus is doing is he's explaining that point. He's explaining the the main reason for the persecution. They do not know the Father. They do not know the Father. And he points to two actions, which also gives us a pattern of ministry here for evangelism and gospel missions. He came and he gave them his word, and he came and did works among them. What a great pattern we have Implied for the church. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But let's look here at verse 22. When you first read this, uh, you wonder is Jesus implying that they were sinless before he came? Or if they had never heard the gospel, they would be innocent and perfect? No, that's not the point of this. We have other passages to know that all of humanity is lost and sinful, right? The doctrine of total depravity. The point of this isn't so much the sinless part, it's the excuse part. That's the point he's making, right? It's not just bad enough, right, that they already knew what they knew about themselves, but I even came and shared the truth of the gospel with them and they still have rejected it. Now they are utterly without excuse. That's the point he is making. And and you can go and read Romans 3, 19 and 20 to see even more of what he's talking about there with total depravity. But the point is, they have no excuse. They have absolutely no excuse now because they have heard my teaching. They've heard my gospel. And then in verse 23, we see this amazing voice. It's very emphatic in the Greek. He says, whoever hates me, hates my father also. Me and my father are emphatic in the, the original language. It's incredible, this, this thought. And here we see this, again, we're reminded of this profound truth of the father and the son that we, we saw in verse four, or chapter 14. You remember, remember uh, Philip's question, show us the father and it's enough for us. Jesus is like, have you seen me? You've seen the Father. We're being reminded of that here. And and one of John's major themes is a relationship with God comes only through Jesus Christ, only through the Son. It's everywhere in his gospel. We've been reminded of this several times. And then in verse 24, we see that second operation of Jesus' ministry. He brought them his word, which is incredible, and they still hate him, and he's also done these works. That refers, obviously, to the miracles, but really the wholeness of Jesus' life on earth and his gospel ministry, all that he did for these people. And we have to understand, too, when it comes to the world, when it comes to these forces who are against God, it's going to change in every situation we're in, every nation, every age, every year. Here in this context, obviously, we've talked about it, it's the Jews. The unbelieving Jews are the world here. But that's going to change anyone that opposes gospel. And I mention that because a theme that is behind this whole passage, which Jesus is bringing to the surface here, is how incredible is it that he came to his own people who knew the Messiah was coming. They had the Old Testament scriptures, and they still reject him. And do you remember the prologue of his gospel? John in verse 11 of this gospel told us that he came to his own, and they rejected him. They cast off his teaching. That's the emphatic part of this last point. These were supposed to be God's people and they rejected their own savior, their own Messiah, wanting nothing to do with them. And it's one of the most tragic undercurrents that we see throughout John's gospel. You saw it back in chapter five, chapter seven, chapter 10. And here we're reminded of it again. How incredible. And he says there in verse 24, not only did he come and do works, he did works that no one else has ever done. We hear the echoes again of the synoptic gospel when he said, someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone who's preaching is far superior to Jonah's is here. And yet through Solomon and through Jonah, the Queen of Sheba believed, the people of Nineveh believed, and here you are with me teaching you the greatest who has ever come in the name of God to both proclaim and work miracles, and you still hate me, and you still hate my father. And where does that hatred come from? And this is important for him and for us. As I said at the very beginning of the sermon, Jesus' teaching was the light. And they hated, I mean, they loved their darkness more than the light. And the same is true for us as we go out into the highways and the byways, to our neighborhoods and to the ends of the earth with this glorious message of Jesus Christ. We will evoke that same response because people hate. Their, I mean, they love their sin. They love their sin. They love the darkness. And when we proclaim truth, we're taking the light of Christ and exposing their darkness for all that it is. And they're going to lash out and attack us for no reason. No reason. For all that Jesus was willing to do for them. For all that he did for them. From his word, to the miracles, to the works. And they hated him without cause. And that's where he ends in verse 25. And you see that here. In the passage, he says, but the word that is written in their law, that's a stinging rebuke right there, right? The law that they think that they know so well that they put all their hopes in, again, back to chapter five, that law is going to condemn them. That's the undercurrent. That's the echo here. That's the stinging rebuke of Jesus implied when he says that. But look what it says. They hated me without cause. They hated me for no reason That verse actually appears in three different Psalms, 35, 69, and 109. Most scholars believe it's Psalm 69 because it's one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. It's the companion of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. But if you look at Psalm 109, where that comes, it's in a part where God's talking about this very truth that he did so much for the people of God, so much for the nation of Israel, and they reject him even still. Does anyone own a cat? right? How many, yeah, that's my cat. You just Now, we share a cat in the cul-de-sac, but my cat will do this, so beware, and many cats. You're sitting there petting it, scratching its head. It it actually enjoys it, and it pushes it up, and then as you're petting it, like for no reason, it bites you and slashes you and then runs off. You're like, what? What was that all about, right? No reason, no reason. That's the point Jesus is making, maybe not in that same way, but wanted to help you out there. So we see The ultimate reason is they do not know the Father. So important for us too. And and there's something in that. As we go into our lost friends, as we share the gospel, as we do things and serve people and love one another, people may lash out at us. And it's important that we do not take it personal, right? Do not take it personal. When we take things personal, we stop obeying God. Don't take it personal. Don't get angry. And remember this, you used to be just like that. And if it wasn't for the grace of God in your life, you'd be doing the same thing to someone else who's sharing truth. So that uh, leads us to a few more application points. Uh, first, first and foremost, um, if a church is not persecuted, what does that say about the church? If the church is loved by the world, what does that say about the people in it? I'm not saying we want to be jerks. We don't. I've seen that. I've seen Christians who are jerks. They go, looking for a fight. I've seen that out in public. Not healthy. It's not what God's called. All we have to do is obey what we've been given, love one another, and love our neighbors enough to go share truth. That alone will bring persecution. We don't have to be jerks about it, but we should be a church that is doing the very things that God is, that Jesus is encouraging his disciples to do that's going to bring about that response. And I believe in our nation, it's going to get worse as time continues. And that's a little scary, but it also is going to bring an incredible opportunity for awakening and revival. Finally, we have to be reminded when it comes to success in evangelism, success in evangelism is not based on whether someone is converted or not. From our point of view. Now, do we want to see people saved? Absolutely. Success in evangelism for you and I is in the going. Whether that message is rejected or received is secondary. That's God's business. But for you and I, success is in the going. It's in the being obedient, going and sharing truth with those whom we love. And one final verse for us today as we close out our time in God's Word. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says there, You have heard it, you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father, just like your father who is in heaven, as he has loved his enemies, which is represented in this room by you all and myself, we too should go and love his enemies, our enemies, regardless of the cost. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come back up as we have one more worship song, a song of response, respond to the Lord in worship by what he has revealed to us this morning, and as we commit ourselves to obeying what this passage uh, calls us to obey. Let me pray for us one last time. Father, thank you again for this time. We, we surrender this to you. This is your mission. You've made that very clear. This is the work and labor of your Father who we are being invited in by implication of our very conversion and a clear uh, command of, of you, Lord, in the Word of God. Let us be obedient as individuals, as missional community groups, and as a congregation to put our hand to the till of the Great Commission. Show us, Lord God, how we can make evangelism more of a priority in our life, both in in praying, like we talked about last week, that prevailing prayer for the salvation of the nations, but also in having the courage and the opportunity to share Christ with those around us, in our communities, in our our neighborhoods, uh, in our families, even on social media, opportunities are there for that as well. Let us be obedient. Let us share the gospel without fear. And trust you, Lord God, trust you to bring glory to yourself as you use the gospel through our lips to bring your children into the kingdom, into the body of Christ. Thank you again for this time we've had this morning. Be with us now as we go forth, especially into a week of uncertainty with all that is happening in our nation. Give us wisdom and guidance and grace. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.